Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you'd open your Bibles and turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews as we continue our journey, we've made it to the last chapter. So our final three studies here in this amazing book. And as you might imagine, the writer of Hebrews now gives us some pretty serious application as we turn our attention to some final thoughts that we need to glean from this amazing book. As you think on what we've learned, we know that this book has presented the superiority, really, it's, it's a single topic that the Jewish people had come to relate to God through the law and through sacrifice and all these feast days and things that God gave them, but they really never developed a deep and abiding relationship with the Lord because of it, they just became dependent upon the law. And so we now stand in grace We now have a relationship actually with the Lord uh, by grace and through faith. And so as you might expect, there is now some attention to what that looks like when you actually live as people who are saved by grace, who are walking in faith, whose lives are in tune with the Spirit's direction. And so we'll pick up here the first eight verses. And so would you join me? We'll pray. And we'll read the word of the Lord together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for the opportunities that we will have this new year to allow our light to shine, to express our gratefulness to you, Lord Jesus, for saving us and that we might be able to use that salvation experience to reach others. And so we pray that you'd ignite your church Lord, set us to task in this world. Cause us to have meaning and purpose. Lord, would our attention be focused on heaven as we enter this new year. Bless us as we study now. We ask these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Verse 1, Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. I don't know that there's going to be a greater admonition for the new year than for the church to return to the central focus of behavior as far as the body of Christ is concerned, and that is that we would have that brotherly love, that agape that should be not only resting in each one of us, but expressed out of each one of us. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained to them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And so the focus becomes living lives that are holy, living lives that are obedient. The Jewish people had learned, in essence, to take upon themselves this incredibly complex and very difficult path of maintaining works as a way of expressing their faith. And now we come to what the Lord would have us know in our day and time, that really the greatest expression of who we are in Christ is by being like Christ himself. And at the top of that list is being someone who loves the way the Lord loves. Someone who expresses the love that they've received from God by giving that same love to other people. Especially those who are also believers. It should be pretty easy for believers to love one another. Amen? Sometimes it's a little more difficult to love people who don't know the Lord because... They're they're walking by a set of different dynamics. Their their lives are are different than ours, sometimes very appreciably. But for us, 
because we are saved by grace and through faith and because our lives are, in essence, encapsulated in the love of Christ, that shouldn't be all that difficult for the church to be loving. And so we're going to see several things, a series of exhortations uh, here in this final chapter about how we ought to live our lives for Christ, both our private lives and our lives in church. Because what we do matters. How we live our lives is important because it either gives glory to the Lord or, unfortunately, it can potentially shame the Lord. How you conduct your life in this world has a direct impact on how people see and even understand who God is at times. You, you may be, as D.L. Moody wisely said, you may be the only Bible that people open. It might be you. You might be the way that people understand who Christ is. The readers of this particular book were encouraged to make a break from the religiosity, the traditions, really the dependence on the law that they had learned through Judaism. Now remember, those laws were all written by God. They were authored by him. And they were given to the Jewish people as a way to relate. The problem was they had become, in essence, a different God. Keeping the law became God. Legalism became God. And while it should never be expressed that God's people are not holy because God himself is holy, amen? If he's holy and we're supposed to be like him, then we're supposed to be holy. The question is, how do you get there? How is it that a child of God should actually live their life? What is it that we should be? You see, change happens all the time. We're entering into a new year. For those of us that have been around a while... Uh, we, we, we sit around, as I remember as if it happened yesterday, sitting in front of the television in the 1960s watching the moon landings. It was like this major deal. I mean, we actually got out of school to sit home and watch television. It's like, they're, they're going to land on the moon. That was a pretty big deal. Now you finally have William Shatner himself going into space. He's finally gone where no man can go. It's like you can just pay money and go into space now. Things are changing constantly, amen? How many variations of the COVID virus? Next week it's going to be, you know, I don't know, Zoomicron or something. I have no idea what's next. It's like we hope it's over. There are some signs that might be the case, but things are changing constantly around us. But can I tell you, God never changes. He never changes. That's part of the truth that we'll see in this passage this morning. God doesn't change. We have remarkable technologies and things that have happened in, in my lifetime. I think of the last hundred years. I mean, think about this. Think what's happened in the last hundred years. You went from, really, from horse and buggy, think about it, to the Prius. Now wait, we're going backwards. Horse and buggies faster. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, but think about all the things. Imagine that somebody would wake up in the early 1900s and go, everybody's going to have a car that runs on batteries. The average person had never seen a battery. And yet... Look at the way the world has progressed. But has it actually gotten better? Or has it just gotten more adept at sinning? And I would say to you that it has gotten more adept at sinning. We've figured out new ways to do the same old things. Not everyone benefits from those technologies. Not everyone benefits from the wealth that exists in our world. Not everyone benefits from the fact that we can, we can grow food at an extraordinary rate, but not everyone has that food. Why? Because mankind still has the same problem it had thousands of years ago. The heart is deceitful, it's desperately wicked, and who can know it? And we all need Jesus. That's the truth. The truth is the world still 
needs Jesus. Amen? In spite of all these other things that we especially in this country are our beneficiaries of, make no mistake, we're blessed. We're really blessed to have the things that we have, to go through the things we go through. In spite of any issues and problems that we still face, we are blessed like no other people on earth. But those blessings don't reach everybody. But Jesus can reach everybody if we're willing to take that message to the world. And so here in this passage, we end up with three commands. And notice that they're in no particular order other than the first one, which is the main one. And that first command is continue to love one another really essentially with Christ's love, with true Christian love. Sometimes people will ask me, well, what's the, what's the main thing about Christianity? And I tell them the same thing every time. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I didn't say that. Jesus did. That's how Jesus defined the mission of the church, really, is to love God supremely and then to love others the way God loves us. It's not that hard. But somehow we've gotten moved from that place. And the church is not what it needs to be. The church should be a rescue place for sinners. And it should be a haven for the saints. It should be a place where everyone is welcomed where we are willing to suffer long and be kind, where we look at one another and say, but for the grace of God, go I, that we recognize that each one of us has our own issues, and we're grateful that God has taken care of our issues, so we ought to be very willing to suffer long with other people's issues, because we have issues, amen? Brotherly love does that. Brotherly love does that, church. When you see other people as family, when you look at other people and say, they're, they're my kinfolk, they're part of my family, you treat them differently, don't you? I can prove this to most of you if you give me an opportunity. When you go to a family function, you, you may be around people, quite honestly, that you wouldn't normally hang around, but you hang around with them and you're nice to them because they're family, Amen. The church is actually supposed to be like that. We're supposed to look at one another and go, that is my brother, that is my sister. How can I do anything but attempt to express to them that I love them? The church is supposed to be filled with that kind of love. Sometimes I think people mistakenly, because we use it, and really rightly so, 1 Corinthians 13 is... Probably one of the favorite wedding passages. I've seen it on wedding cards, wedding invitations. I, I've used it myself in wedding ceremonies. And it's even appropriate there. But the interesting thing is, probably in your Bible, if you actually look at it, you know, I have little, the little headings there before chapters. Those are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the way. But very often, they're, they're true. In my Bible, it says, above 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest spiritual gift. Do you know that's actually true? That's the context of that passage. The context of that passage is talking about the spiritual gifts in chapter 12, chapter 13, and the greatest of these is love, is how verse 13 ends, is describing the greatest spiritual gift is that you love the way the Lord loves. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not giving. It's not hospitality. It's not pastoral gifts. It's not teaching. It's not memorizing scripture. The greatest spiritual gift that you can ever possess and use is love. The Bible says that, church. Jesus said that, church. And so when we talk about the church being a place where God's love is preeminent, 
It's because that's what the Bible tells us to do. All these other things that we sometimes get hung up in, while they may have a place in a portion of the church, the main thing is, does the church love the way God loves us? That's without reservation, amen? It is also without qualification, amen? While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He didn't say, hey, clean up your act and then we can talk. He said, I'll die for you before you clean up your act. The church should be filled with that kind of love. Love that won't accept sin, but love that recognizes sinners' sin. And if we're going to reach people, we're going to have to deal with people who sin. Because sinners sin and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? So if you don't love people who are sinners, if you don't love people who are caught in the middle of some of the most horrendous things imaginable, if you don't love them, then you're not acting the way God wants you to act. Because God loved you when you were a sinner. You're supposed to love other people. But what happens in church? Well, you know, we don't allow people to wear shorts in church. As if somehow if you wear shorts to church, you're going straight to hell. Yes, I got an email to that effect. (laughs) You know, there's a guy wearing shorts. Yes, I saw him. I was jealous. (laughs) It was summer. It was hot. But think about it. Aren't we, in that sense, Judaizers? We have our own things that we, oh, you know, the church has to have this or it has to have that. I grew up in a church that had the Stations of the Cross, stained glass, both sides, loved it. But sometimes I got distracted. I wanted to know what, he was like, well, that piece doesn't belong there. Could be good. But when you start worrying more about the stained glass and you about the sinners that are sitting in the pews, you got a problem. We need to love the way Christ loves. That's the first command here. We, we can't be the church God wants us to be until we love the way God wants us to love. A second thing, entertain strangers. It's not that hard. Isn't it weird how when people come into the church and they don't act the way we expect them to act, they maybe don't look the way we expect them to look, they have the wrong clothes on, or maybe they're, you know, they're kind of doing something that we don't... I will never forget the first email I got about people having their phones on in church. Now again, your pastor believes you should own a paper Bible, the real thing that you can write in. So please have one of those. I would prefer that you use that when you're here in the sanctuary. But I also recognize that some people don't even know that you can get a Bible that isn't electronic. But I will never forget the first email I got about somebody opening their phone in church. And it started, and I quote, the devil has gotten into the church. That was the header for the email. The devil has finally gotten into the church. And then it went on to describe everything that could possibly be done on a cell phone. Now look, I would prefer that you have a wonderful paper Bible. I love hearing the pages turn. Mine is so worn out, there are parts of it I can barely read. I've written in it so much that it's like it's hard to see some of the pages. But if we're going to worry about an open cell phone app, we're not going to entertain strangers. We're going to go, oh, did you see that guy? I think he was texting. <laughs> was reading the news. Now look, let me be clear. I've busted some of all y'all checking the sports scores. <laughs> Just saying.
But do you really think that that's what matters to God? No. Not at all. Not saying you should be checking the sports scores, but what I am saying is God wants us to entertain strangers. He wants us to make people so welcome that we get the opportunity to tell them why you probably shouldn't be checking sports scores while you're in church. But if you don't entertain them first, they will never come back. If they don't feel welcome for any reason, they may, they, you may not get another chance. So open your hearts to sit next to people with whom maybe you think they ought to be doing something different. Entertain strangers. Tell people that they're welcome in your home. Use the gift of hospitality as another way to say it. When you go on the mission field, one of the things that you have to learn very quickly is the rest of the world isn't like America. Amen? If you've been, you know what I'm saying. It's like until you've been delivered a soup with a chicken foot in it. You're like, hmm, not sure there, but... You see, we've gotten so used to having things our way that we don't recognize that not everybody sees things our way. And so we start to exclude people. We should be the most inclusive group of people that's ever existed on the face of the earth. People should be dying to get through the doors of this church. I don't know what's going on in there, but all I know is people are welcome there. And it should be true for your home. You should be focused on the guest, not on yourself. Focused on the people that God wants to reach, not on you. Not what makes you comfortable, what makes them comfortable. You never know when you might just have an angel show up. Both Abraham and Lot had that happen. Genesis 18, Genesis 19. I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but I have wondered at times. I've had some experiences on the mission field where it's just like, I'm virtually certain that was an angel. I've been delivered out of stuff. It's like, I don't even know how we made it out of there alive. I'm not sure what the Lord did there. I don't know who that person was. I don't even know where they came from. But I know they had a word from the Lord. Church, we need to be open to God moving that way in our lives again. Focus on people who are imprisoned. As if you were chained to them. Now I think it's beneficial that we recognize that when these words were written, people were actually imprisoned for their faith. And while that is also still true, let's broaden that a little bit. How about people that are imprisoned by poverty, homelessness? Do you feel as though you're chained to someone who's homeless? Someone who lives in desperate poverty and has for generations? Or in a system of government that isn't like ours? Are you willing to give up your personal freedoms? To bless others? Because that's what Jesus did. We're to take those who were imprisoned and help set them free. And we can't do that if all we do is try and maintain status quo in our own lives. Maintain our own position, our own wealth. We have some ministries that we do here at this church that we actually can't tell you about. We can't tell you about them because it would endanger the lives of people all over the world. You won't ever see a video. You won't ever get a report. All I can tell you is 
You're going to meet people in heaven whom you directly affected by setting them free from prison just from your faithfulness of being a part of this ministry. Amen? We should be engaged in those things all the time. We shouldn't be looking at, well, you know, uh, we, we need to have them fill out a form. Look, you can't fill out a form. Some of these places that we minister, the form itself would get that person likely killed. Are you about people who are imprisoned? There are people all over the world, though they may not actually be in prison, they might as well be. Because they live in a country where they cannot openly express their faith in Christ. Or maybe they're imprisoned by a government that takes everything they have away from them. They live in a corrupt regime. We have to be concerned about what God is concerned about if we want to be the real church. And he is concerned about these things. And so we need to be concerned about these things, helping people flee from that prison experience. Sometimes I think of what's going on in places like North Korea and Iran, Venezuela, China. Pastor Pat is in Sudan right now. The northern part of Sudan is highly hostile towards Christians. Yet we have a number of churches there that we support. A couple of them that we've actually physically built. We need to be concerned. Not just for our own freedoms. It's one of the things that bothers me so much about the narrative in our country right now. It's it's so selfish. It's like my freedoms, my this, my that. Jesus came not for his own good. He came to do the will of him who sent him. That's the mission of the church. It's not to please myself. It's to please God by pleasing others. That's the Christian narrative. And that's what's taught here in the 13th chapter. There are also some commands for our private lives. Notice what they are. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all, the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Anybody think, as I do, that the breakdown of the nuclear family is one of the greatest things that's destroying our country? I do. I believe it is one of the leading causes of most of the problems that we face in our country. When you have a mom and a dad who don't love one another enough to stay together for the sake of their children, if no other reason, that expresses often selfishness. That selfishness pervades the life of the children, and it creates a heritage of broken families. I know I come from one. It ended with my family. But if we don't see marriage the way God sees it, if we don't honor our spouses, if we won't put to death those things that are in us, that rise up against a healthy marriage, then we're going to reap the horrible cost of broken marriages. How many people are in financial distress because of divorce? How many children never achieved their best because of divorce? How many people don't even know what marriage is because they've endured divorce? The great and wonderful news is God can heal even that pain. But we shouldn't be entertaining it as if it means nothing. I can't even tell you how many couples, well, you know, I just, I just fell out of love. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't fall out of love with you? And I can tell you this, I'm worthy of somebody falling out of love with occasionally. 
And I'm pretty sure all of you are too. Now you may be the rare person on earth that is like so amazing that everybody wants to be near you. But the fact that you're like that probably means nobody wants to be around you because they can't meet your expectation. Amen? But we've taken it to a new level in our society. We no longer, not only do we not honor marriage, we've substituted other things for it. Gay marriage. There's not a single incident in the entire Bible where the Bible doesn't plainly say that that is sin. And while that sin can be forgiven, it's still destructive like all sin is. It will never be God's best for you. It will always be damaging and ultimately damning. Why? Because God created marriage to be between a man and a woman. It begins in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. So you can try and change the definition if you want. But you're going to be wrong because God's the one that ordained marriage. And he says it's honorable amongst all. But he says things like polyamory to where you're in love with more than one person are equally not okay with God. Fornication, not okay with God. Open marriage, not okay with God. All these things are sinful and they destroy. And can I just say, please do not use the phrase around me, baby daddy. <laughs> Any immoral fool can make a baby. It takes a man to be a father. It's not God's plan. It's not God's plan. And if you think it is, you're going to live long enough to find out it's not. And that's not me condemning anyone. That's saying, if you engage in things that God says are not his best for you, you're going to get what he says. He's true. He doesn't lie. He's not telling you so he can ruin your dating experience. The marriage bed is honorable Amongst all, God created marriage. That's the only place where that expression is supposed to be used. Let's have a biblical understanding of that. A second thing. Let your conduct be without covetousness, verse 5. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. How many people make horrible decisions in their life because of covetousness? Materialism. Retail therapy. I actually had a person try and describe this to me. It's like, well, you know, it's kind of like, and it's, it's kind of like alcohol, actually. It's kind of like drugs, actually. It's just covetousness wrapped in something else. Church. We have to do what the Bible it admonishes us to do, and that's to stay away from coveting money, possessions, the things that you can buy and possess. Why? Because it will eventually become a substitute for God himself. And you'll start to love the stuff that you possess more than you love God. It's what Jesus said, by the way. No one can serve two masters. He'll love the one, hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. No one can serve God and mammon, money, possessions. It's not possible. You've got to live within the life that God's given you. And as much as sometimes we want to say, well, Lord, 
It's possible to love money without having any of it. Did you know that? You want to see that? When you get involved in in ministry in Central America, Latin America, you're going to see people who love money that don't have any of it. And they sell their souls to run drugs and do all kinds of stuff, believing that somehow they're going to be like the guy that leads the cartel. They don't have any of it. It's a fake dream. It's also possible to have money without loving it. It just becomes a tool. It's something that God uses in your life for good, and it can be a tremendous blessing. The question is, are you content? Because if you're discontent, then no amount of money will make you contented. It's a heart issue. It's not a money issue. It's a heart issue. That's why the church isn't supposed to be filled with people who love money. Do you see money the way God sees it? It's just simply another thing that you are steward over. It's just like your house and your cars. Your, your bank book goes in the same place as your cupboard. God, those are your groceries. If somebody else needs them, tell me where they're at. A third thing. In that contentment, we have to understand that God always is faithful to give us what we need. So if you're content the way God wants you to be content, if you're not loving money, then the things that you need, you have. For my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So whatever you actually have need of, matter of fact, Jesus said, my heavenly father knows what you have need of before you do. So he's already got a plan to take care of it. The question is, are you on his plan or your plan? These things will transform your life because you know what? You learn to be content. You say, Lord, for whatever reason, this is where we are today. This is what you have allowed in our life in the moment. Paul said it this way, I have learned how to be content in whatever state I find myself, whether I am abased, in other words, I have nothing, or I abound, I have everything. If we all take that up, then everything we have has its right place. It's like, okay, Lord, this is what you have for us this day. What did Jesus Pray for the disciples' prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Amen? He didn't say, Lord, give us a whole store full of bread so that we can never worry about bread again. There is a level of contentment that comes from Jesus giving us daily bread. Sometimes, and some of you I know know this, moment by moment bread. Bread that even seems a little late to us, right? You know what I'm saying. It's like all of a sudden the bread shows up and you're going, well, but it would have been nice yesterday, but thank you for it today, Lord. You must have had some reason for me to endure that difficulty because you're good. Church, these things will transform the way you think. There's a reason Jesus said, do not fear those that can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body and cast it into hell. You see, when you have the fear of the Lord, then you fear the way you're supposed to fear. But when you have the fear of losing your stuff, you're going to make some of the dumbest decisions you could possibly imagine. When your fear is all based on hanging on to whatever you have in this life, then you're going to begin to serve the things instead of the creator who made the things. And that's never fruitful. And I speak with some experience. You, you see, you can serve mammon and never have enough. Or you can serve the Lord and always have enough. Choice is yours. 
Amen? Now that always enough is not the same for everyone. That's the crazy part. I've seen people with what we would say have the least of nothing. And they literally have nothing. But they have everything they need. And I've seen people who have everything that you could possibly imagine and have nothing. And everything in between. The secret is what's inside your heart. It's how do you approach the throne room of God? And if you're content, you're going to be blessed. That's all I can tell you. The only antidote is trusting the Lord. That's what cures covetousness. I trust in the Lord with all of my heart. I don't lean on my own understanding, but in all of my ways acknowledge him, even in the ways of, Lord, it's your house. Lord, it's your car. Lord, you know we need insurance. Lord, you know, you know, you know, you know. You know what we have need of. Lord, I trust you. You see, contentment is born in faith. Contentment is born in faith, church. If you have faith that God is who he says he is, then you can be content with everything or be content with nothing. The way you help, the way that often God helps us understand these things is through spiritual leadership. Follow people. Notice verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith, where is it born out of? Contentment is born out of faith. The right direction is born out of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen. Amen. And so as you're taught the word, as you take in the word, as the word becomes part of your DNA, as your mind is transformed, as you follow people who are also following the Lord Jesus, considering the outcome of their conduct. Church. I pray that at least at this stage of our lives that Connie and I have lived lives that other people could emulate. We, we've, we've walked the walk. I believe we've talked the talk, but I, I believe we've also walked the walk. We live a life as best as we possibly can that should be able to be emulated in some, to some extent. But I've also followed others that have done the same. That's your job too. You're supposed to be a witness to the world of what it means to walk with Jesus. And so this is a very long-winded way of saying to the extent that I walk with Jesus and you walk with Jesus, other people will know how to walk with Jesus. Because it isn't natural. Amen? Your natural man says, well, I want what I want. Your natural man says, please my flesh. Your carnal man, your internal man, that nature that you were born with in Adam is going to want more of everything all day, every day. It is following the commands of Christ that actually gets you the contentment. It's walking in faith. It's not by sight. You're not deceiving yourself when you say, Lord, send me somebody to help me with this. That's why Jesus himself actually said, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. We often forget that the Great Commission contains more than just make disciples. It says, and teaching them all things as I have commanded you. What's the best way for us to learn anything? By doing it, amen? How do you normally learn to do it? By following somebody else. Amen? You find somebody that's already good at that and go, I, could I follow you around all day and see how you do those things? And it doesn't matter what subject matter you're talking about. If you want to learn physics, you might want to follow somebody who's a physics professor and go, you know, I'd really like to figure out how all this stuff works. But if you want to learn physics, you probably shouldn't follow around a PE teacher. They're not going to be able to teach you physics. Unless they happen to do both, which some of them do. But the point is this. You learn by example. And then you teach by example. 
Disciples are both followers and leaders simultaneously. That's the crazy part. God allows us to learn things from him that we teach others. All these passages say roughly the same thing. Paul actually said, follow me as I follow Christ. Amen? You notice what he didn't say? Follow me. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, there's some area where I'm not following Christ. Just ignore that part. Amen. But you know what? Sometimes, mm, nah, you probably shouldn't follow that. Follow me as I follow Christ. Become imitators of us and the Lord, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. As we are in leadership, please pray for us. Pray for your pastors, all of us. Pray for the leadership of the church. Pray for the board. Pray for the elders. Pray for people who have the responsibility of your souls in that sense. Because there's only one unchangeable one. And his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's actually the whole point of his I am statements, in case you didn't know that. When he said I am, he was using the name that only God can have. I am past, I am present, and I am future. It contains all of the understanding that when Jesus says, I am the way, He's saying, I always have been the way. I am the way today, and I will still be the way tomorrow. I I have always been the bread of life. I'm the only bread of life today, and I will be the bread of life when the end of the age comes. I always was the resurrection I still am the resurrection today, and I'm the resurrection tomorrow. Do you understand what I'm saying? He changes not. And so all these things that we've been told to be and do is born out of his character. Because he doesn't change, we shouldn't change what we think, how we act, According to scripture. What the Bible says, if Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever when it was written, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever now, and he's going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever when we all get done and in heaven, then what the Bible says, because he is the word, amen, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, amen? If the word is him, then we can't change what the word says. We need to just simply live it. And so what it says is how we should live. If he's unchangeable, then our character in him should also not change where it matches his character. When I'm most like Jesus, then you can follow what I'm doing. Follow what I'm saying. If I'm not acting like Jesus or being like, please don't follow me. He's the unchangeable one, church. And so these final thoughts, how do we do it? Same way you do everything else. If you want knowledge, you you study information, right? Remember when we used to all own encyclopedias in our homes? And you would have to get an update like every year or two years because stuff would change. And so you'd have the whole encyclopedia and then you'd get the updates to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now it happens about every 10 nanoseconds on the World Wide Web and it's like, you know, you look on Wikipedia, like, oh, I didn't know that the capital, you can get it right. You study, right? Study God's word. You fill storage tanks up with that stuff, by the way. Things that you hold valuable, you store up. Amen? Store up Jesus. 
in your life, in everything, in your knowledge, your understanding, the way you live, what you do. Another way is you buy life insurance. You know, as you get a little older, you, you kind of look at your life insurance policies and go, I wonder who's going to benefit from this, because it's not going to be me. <laughs> right? But while you have it, what does it do for you? It gives you peace that your, your family's going to be okay should anything happen. Your insurance policy was drafted by Jesus. All you got to do is accept it. Amen? Another way, if you want to have things stable, not changing in your life, you have a savings account, right? If you want to make sure that your bills are going to be paid tomorrow in a natural sense, in a wonderful financial planning way, you put money in a savings account. Why? So that you have something for the future. Something happens. It doesn't instantaneously change. I would say to you spiritually, store up your treasures in heaven. Put stuff in heaven's account because it'll never change. It'll always be there. And when you need it, it's going to be there. This is the way that we are to live our lives. It's a great challenge for us as we begin the new year. To put away the things of the world and take upon ourselves the things of Christ and to allow him to do with us as he wills to do his good pleasure. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Pastor Alex will come back out and lead us in a chorus. If you need prayer after service, prayer rooms available. If you don't know Jesus, please just walk into that prayer room and say, I want to know Jesus today. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness in my life, in Connie and I's life. All of these decades, Lord, as we have been so blessed to be able to serve you and you have so blessed us as we've done that i pray if there's anybody today that's struggling with their value that you would just remind them of who they are in you pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you whether they're watching online or here in the building somewhere god would you speak to their hearts the necessity of knowing you personally as savior and lord that they might have eternal life and God, for the rest of us, as we endeavor to use these things for your benefit, for your kingdom in the days ahead, God, would you cause us to have supreme brotherly love? Would you help us to be entertaining to strangers? Lord, would you cause us to remember people who are imprisoned? Would you help us to search after those that are mistreated? Lord, would you keep us from covetousness? Lord, cause our marriages to reflect your goodness and your grace. Bless us, Lord, as we attempt to live these things out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.